0: For a long time, I didn't really think much about the end-of-time stuff, or to use its theological term, eschatology. I kind of just ignored it, because a lot of Christians are super into it, and they look at books like Revelation, and they derive a bunch of very specific information about what they think is going to happen in the future, and then they argue so intensely about it. And so I just avoided eschatology or the end times altogether for a long time. You know, I thought everything related to this topic in like the heavenly realm and angelic beings, it's just so difficult to interpret and we can't really figure out the details. And since I didn't feel like being in heated debates over specifics I couldn't be sure about, eschatology just took a back burner. And many people take a similar approach. You know, we get annoyed at people getting so caught up in all this end time stuff, and you know, we say, let's just ignore it and let's look at the here and now. Let's focus on what being a Christian means for us right now, how God is working in us in the world right now. But we can't just ignore a whole area of God's word, a whole area of God's revelation, because it feels too abstract. Because we can know important details about the end of times. We can read passages like ours today that have important insights for us. The future holds incredible implications about the present. What we believe will happen in the future impacts what we believe about the here and now. In these last seven weeks, in Revelation 2 and 3, we saw seven letters to seven different churches. And they were relatively straightforward. You know, we're familiar with letters. Much of the New Testament, the epistles, are letters. And I don't know when the last time you physically wrote out a letter was. It's not very common anymore. But we're all very familiar with that concept. The idea of someone writing a letter and sending it to someone in the first century Roman Empire isn't so far removed from our experience that we don't get it. So letters have a familiarity to them. But Revelation 4 marks this transition from letters to what you would call like the really far-out-there stuff. The parts of the New Testament that are most notorious for being difficult to interpret, that sound and feel way more strange and that feel very foreign to us. The parts that we might be tempted to just kind of like ignore or gloss over and not try to derive meaning from. And so this chapter is important for setting up the the rest of the book, both in the text itself, as this transition, and in our hearts. We need to approach this passage with humility and a desire to know what God is communicating through this wild section of Scripture. So let's pray and ask God for help. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. I thank you that we can have knowledge of who this God is that we worship. I thank you that we can truly know Christ. I ask that this morning, by learning more about you, we will know you better. Amen. Revelation is apocalyptic. We're probably familiar with the term apocalypse, and it comes from this genre of apocalyptic literature. There are these prophetic visions of the end of times. A lot of them are so-called prophetic visions of the end of times. And this type of writing was popular from about 200 B.C. to 280. There are lots of different apocalyptic literature was written. And there's this certain kind of common symbolism that's used throughout these apocalyptic writings. And so I'll mention one particular instance later that's included in our chapter today. But apocalyptic literature isn't popular today. We don't write it, and we don't really read it either. So we might approach Revelation and think like, oh, it's like science fiction or fantasy. You know, because those, genera- those genres are a little more familiar with us. But it's not that. You know, I love sci-fi. I was just watching Treasure Planet with my family yesterday. Science fiction is great, but apocalyptic literature is not science fiction. It's different. For starters, it's not intended to be read as fiction. It's meant to be read as true and literal. Yes, there's a lot of symbolism. And in Revelation, John is trying to describe this otherworldly phenomena, you know, using references from our finite experiences. But this should be read as actually happening. Books in the Old Testament have apocalyptic sections and Revelation is tied really heavily to them. So Revelation doesn't often directly quote the Old Testament, but throughout the entire book, there's reference after reference to Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, these Old Testament prophets that received visions about the future. So our first verse... Marks that transition I mentioned. A voice calls John up to heaven. This is the same voice, the voice like a trumpet that he heard at the beginning of Revelation, which kicked off this entire vision. And then we hear this phrase, what must take place after this. This phrase is used throughout Revelation and not necessarily for chronology, it's not saying that the events of chapter 4 occur after 2 and 3, but rather that this is simply the next section of the vision. It's saying like, I showed you this, and now after that, I must show you this. So it's, it's chronological in terms of when John is seeing it, but it's not chronological in terms of the events that are happening. These events are happening... Uh, at the same time as chapters 2 and 3, and they're happening now, at this very moment. In verses 2 and 7, we see God's glory and power, and that brings us to our first bullet point. If you're taking notes, our first section, Christ's glory and power revealed. In chapter 4, the throne is mentioned 14 times in these 11 verses it's mentioned 14 times so you know do the math that's pretty frequent we're very clearly in a throne room Christ called out to John through the door to come up and so this is Christ he is witnessing this is Christ's throne room in the Old Testament they had the temple and God's very presence resided there they would go and they would worship at this physical structure and now we see a vision of a much grander temple one that's incom- It's incomparable to the earthly temple. And the first aspect described of this place of worship is Christ himself. In verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of Emerald. So, it's important right off the bat to note that You know, we don't get a direct, tangible description of Christ in this passage. It's about light that's radiating from him and other beings that are surrounding him. And the description of what he looks like on his throne is very abstract. The reason is twofold. John is attempting to describe something indescribable, like trying to describe to a blind person what a sunset looks like, having to use points of reference that they'll understand that will fall very short of them fully grasping what it looks like. So he's using these points of reference that we would get, but fall short of describing in their entirety the glory of what's happening. And also, you know, this isn't really a description of Christ that you're going to make like a statue or a painting of and then worship it. This isn't like a neat, tidy image of a God that is someone that you'd like make an idol of and diminish him to something far below than he actually is. So looking at these gemstones, ancient people, they didn't classify gemstones the exact same way as we do today. I don't know much about gemstone classification. Someone much smarter than me uh, made that observation. But so Jasper was white, either an opal or a diamond cut in a way so it was white rather than clear. And the carnelian was a red gem. The emerald is most likely the same as our present-day emerald, a green gem. And in the Old Testament, these gemstones are mentioned when referring specifically to God's glory. And here, too, they're displaying the indescribable glory of Christ, an array of colors, white, red, green, green. And mixed in with all this is a rainbow. And the rainbow contributes to the visual imagery of the scene, a bright light mixed with the gemstones, creating this dazzling array of colors. When I was a kid, we had those like cardboard kaleidoscopes that looked you know, like little telescopes. You'd look through it, and you look up at the light, and you'd spin it, and the little plastic beads and gemstones in there would create this like, moving picture of colors, I was just, I found it, like, really mesmerizing. I could just, like, spend a lot of time just, like, spinning that little disc and watching the patterns go around. And that's what's happening here, but, like, on a much, like, grander, incredible scale. Like, in this passage, it's almost like Christ is a prism with light shining through him and splitting the light. Or, like, he's like a laser light show with light radiating from him and all the colors shining and moving. The rainbow is significant because of its symbolism when it first appears in Scripture. After the flood, when God rescued Noah and his family, he gave them the rainbow as a sign of his promise, a sign of mercy, that in the midst of great anxiety and calamity, there is hope for those that look to Christ. There is peace and calm for those that look to Christ because of his great mercy. And in the midst of that display of mercy, verse 5 says that there's a thunderstorm coming from the throne. We don't experience the power of nature nearly as often as our ancestors did because, you know, we're generally more protected from the elements when we're at home or even when we're traveling. But sometimes we get glimpses of the power of nature. Medicine Lake isn't too far from here, and you know while it's a good-sized lake, it's it's not a huge it's not huge, and I've gone boating on it countless times, and I'd never really seen very big waves on it, you know no matter what the weather was like, I, you know it was always relatively calm, but this one time, I was boating with my family when a storm just suddenly came up out of nowhere, and the rain started pouring and. As we made our way back to the boat launch, you know, we thought like, wow, the wind is really whipping. These waves are huge. When we got to the dock, a guy ran up to us in a panic and he said, you know, can you help me? I was canoeing and some of the people I was canoeing with are still out there. They're stuck on the other side of the lake and they can't get back. Like the wind and the waves are too strong. Can you, can you help us? And so he hopped on the boat with us and he pointed us in the right direction and we took off. And on our way, going through the waves and the wind and the rain, we saw there was this like clump of boats that were all together, and I didn't really pay much attention because we are like on this rescue mission. And so we found the canoers, and the waves were big enough that if I had been on the canoe, I would have been really freaked out. And the people in the canoe were freaked out. One of them was crying, and very understandably, because you're in this little canoe on a lake with huge... Waves and wind and rain, and no way to get to shore. So we were able to get them and the canoe back on the boat. And as we were heading back to the dock, we passed the spot where all those boats had been clumped together, and they were all gone. They had all gone back to the dock, except for one. There was one boat left, and it was upside down. This was, you know, like a modern, pretty expensive speedboat that had completely capsized on this small lake in Minnesota from this storm that had kind of shown up in the, from the middle of nowhere. It made me think, you know, imagine what that storm was like on Minnetonka, on, like a, on a big lake, how much bigger those waves were. And those are nothing compared to when there's a storm on the ocean, In a a normal storm, the ocean is nothing compared to a hurricane or a tsunami. The most powerful forces of nature, whether earthquakes, tornadoes, wildfires, they're all minuscule displays of God's power. Around God's throne is this mighty thunderstorm. Also around the throne, we have four living creatures. And these hold a lot of similarities to some heavenly beings described in the Old Testament. Ezekiel describes cherubim and Isaiah 6 describes seraphim. They're in the first song we sang. And how they declare God's glory. They're in the throne room of God. And so both of these, the cherubim and the seraphim, hold similarities to the creatures in the passage today. And so you know, does that mean that cherubim and seraphim are the same? You know, we don't know. These, these creatures in our passage, they're either one of them or they're both or there's some other order of heavenly being that's similar. We don't know, but what we can know is what's important about them. The first important aspect is that they're covered in eyes. In apocalyptic literature, eyes symbolize knowledge Seeing, observing, and knowing. And here it's referencing God's omniscience. His all-knowingness. These four beasts created by God are his observers of what's happening in the world. They're seeing everything, covered in eyes, inside and out. And they're the agents of his omniscience. God knows everything about you. And he knows everything. Everything happening around you. These heavenly beings are also represented of creation as a whole. Creation testifies to us the greatness of God. By observing it, we can see the fingerprints of a God that cares so much that he's fine tuned details all the way down to the subatomic level. And beyond creation testifying, Us, God's greatness, it actually testifies His greatness back to God. In Luke, Christ says that if His disciples were silent and didn't praise Him, the very stones would cry out. He is so glorious that Him receiving praise is inevitable. It will happen. He will receive praise. And if people don't do it, then other parts of His creation will. These creatures are God's creation glorifying him and they each have a unique face they all signify a key attribute of god the lion the most majestic and powerful animal the ox which represents his endurance and strength there's a human face which reflects his intelligence and lastly the eagle which is here to display god's protection god said he will bore up his people on the wings of eagles to protect them he will watch over them and he will protect them so to recap these beasts throw, show us three truths about god they're observing they're reflecting god's omniscience and they're representative of all creation and how it glorifies to exist god and thirdly each creature has a unique face that displays a quality of god that's important especially as it relates to how he interacts with his creation. His majesty, his steadfastness, his intelligence, and his protection. And then, this all wasn't confusing enough, there's another added layer in this throne room. There's 24 elders. So who who are these guys? You know, like, maybe it's in the back of your mind, like, could I become one of these 24 elders? Well, one theory is to take this number the 24, and to split it in half. So you have the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. You have 12 representatives of, of Israel, one from each tribe, and the 12 apostles from the New Testament. And you're like, boom, you put them together. You have 24, and they're in this throne room. And so that's, you know, like, that's nice and tidy. That's, it sounds nice, but it neglects a lot of important details that are coming up in these upcoming chapters. So in the next chapter, it quotes the 24 elders in this way. They say in verses, uh, five, sorry, chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. When talking about God redeeming his people, it says them, not us. This might sound like a small detail, but it's important. They're not including themselves in those redeemed. They're not including themselves as being part of the people ransomed for God by his blood. Also in chapter 5, and in many other spots in Revelation, these elders take the role of explaining the vision to John. In an apocalyptic literature, including throughout Revelation, this explanatory role is held by angels. Also in chapter 5, they present the prayers of God's people to him, which is another role of angels. And later, the people of God sing a new song to him, but the elders aren't able to learn this song. This is only reserved for humans. Later, it also describes the saints worshiping God. And as they're worshiping God, they're surrounded by angelic beings and the elders and the cherubim. So looking at how the text describes the elders' words and actions, these appear to be angelic, heavenly beings created for the purpose of residing there in God's throne room, and to praise him in this chapter there are only two people one is john and he's the observer you know he's just there very temporarily as a visitor and then you have christ who's the god man this is a truly other you know different separate setting from our experience Christ is surrounded by these mysterious heavenly beings in a throne room. He is the king. He is indeed the king of kings. He's surrounded by others that have their own thrones and crowns. And they bow down and they are worshiping him. He is the one above all. In in verse 11, the elders say, "'Worthy are you, our Lord and God.'" This is a direct reference, actually, to the Caesar of the time, Emperor Domitian. His title was Dominus et Dus Noster, which directly translates to Our Lord and Our God. That was the title he gave himself for the Roman people to call him Our Lord and Our God. Emperor Domitian was the one that revived the imperial cult, placing himself not just as the physical and political leader of the Roman subjects, but as their religious and their spiritual lord. He placed himself as their god, and he gave himself the title of lord and god. In our passage, we see a greater lord, a greater god, on a greater throne, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were creator. He is the creator and sustainer of life itself. No earthly ruler can compare to him. No earthly ruler can hold greater authority or power. He is truly the king of kings. He is the emperor of emperors. There's also the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And this has been mentioned a couple times in Revelation. It refers to this, the singular spirit of God. And it's tied to a passage in, in Isaiah that references the sevenfold nature of the spirit of God. And so, if you want to know more about that, come to Q&A after this service if you want to talk about it. Um... The fact that the Spirit of God is residing right in front of the throne intensifies the throne's importance in place. And it intensifies the importance of the one sitting on the throne. And finally, after all these details, the the last one, if you're still with me, is the sea of glass. If this throne didn't already feel foreign enough, alien enough, you know, strange enough, distant enough, now there's something in the way that's truly separating it from us. Throughout Scripture, the sea is tied symbolically to evil. The Israelites, they weren't a sea-going people. And the seas were a great unknown to them. And so God uses the sea and the dangers and chaos associated with it to re- represent evil. Here we have a sea before the throne, and this sea is an obstacle. It's a barrier between us and the throne. And there's several you know, good theories of what exactly this specific description of a sea of glass like crystal. If you want to talk about that, again, come to the Q&A. You know, I'd love to talk about that. But what we know about this, for sure, is that it represents evil, and it's a barrier between God and us. And that And It also doesn't fall outside of God's domain. Even though it's evil, he still has power over it. So why are all these details here? And, you know, why are they important? Why are we spending so much time you know, talking about each one? Well, each one has something specific to say. And I mentioned these, you know, as we went through. But ultimately, they're creating a combined picture, a setting, an environment, the throne room of Christ. And we get a, a visual idea of what it's like, what's going on. And more importantly, we get a thematic picture. Because all of, this pic, all of this chapter is pointing to an aspect of who God is. All of these details together are displaying the immense holiness of God which is our next section, the holiness of God. In addition to these descriptions in the first half of the the chapter, starting in verse 8, we also have words that are being spoken by the heavenly beings. They say, you know, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This Thrice holy is mentioned only one other time in Scripture, the other being in Isaiah 6, in a very similar picture to this one. So this, this, is, this is significant. This is important. You know, this is sit a little closer to the edge of your seat. Because what does holy mean? You know, we sing songs about it. We talk about it. But like, what does it mean? What does holy mean? Some people say it means separate. But this, the creatures aren't saying separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty. You know, others say holy means moral. But the creatures aren't saying moral, moral, moral is the Lord God Almighty. Nor is it love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. It's holy, holy, holy. The closest word to holy that we have is God. The word holy is encompassing of who God is. It's tying up all his characteristics and attributes. The reason why it's hard to grasp what holy means is because it's hard to grasp fully who God is because he's so complex. And so all of this includes, you know, yes, how he's separate, yes, how he's moral, yes, how he's love. but it doesn't stop there. So when the the four living creatures declare holy, holy, holy they're proclaiming that God is separate moral loving and he's also perfect, merciful, gracious all powerful, all knowing the list goes on and on in the same way that the throne room is visually complex God is characteristically complex he's truly different than us and so when he commands us in 1 Peter to be holy, for I am holy, it's intimidating. Or at, at least it should be. Be holy, for I am holy. We're to embody the characteristics of God. But have you seen his characteristics? Have you seen in this passage who he is? Because no matter how much we try to be holy, we're not going to reach a point where light and thunderstorms are literally radiating out of us. We're not going to be able to speak creatures into existence. We don't deserve having the highest angelic and heavenly beings bowing down and worshiping us. You know, we'll never be worthy of sitting on a throne surrounded by 24 other thrones with angelic beings wearing crowns that bow down and place them before us. His holiness is far above us. Now, his command for us to be holy is not telling us to become exactly like him. Because there are some aspects of who he is that is reserved solely for him. We aren't to become gods. But we are to become godly. And his standard of what being holy and godly looks like is far above what we could possibly accomplish. He is so clearly on a different level than us. So how can we be holy? How can we even approach the throne? Let alone, you know, think of sitting on it. That's why the sea is here. It's not just the evil out there. In the world, it's the evil in here in my heart. It's the evil in your heart. How do we fix the evil inside us? How do we get across that sea between us and Christ? You know, this is the question. But before we answer it, we actually need to raise the stakes even higher. Because not only is God so incredibly holy, there's a vital positional element to everything here. All of these details that we talked about paint this elaborate, intense setting. And in the middle, we have Christ at the center of it all. And that's our next section, Christ at the center of it all. In this passage, he's literally physically in the middle and he's also in the center spiritually. Surrounding God is his creation and the different aspects of it. We see creatures in the highest orders of heavenly beings, a thunderstorm, radiant light, all surrounding him and with him at the center of it all. He is the source of each individual part's existence and this extends to all creation. John wrote in the beginning of the Gospel of John, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything was made through him. And all of it, all of creation's purpose is to point to him. The light and the thunderstorm are pointing to him merely through their existence. Since they're they're a magnificent sight radiating from Christ, they display how marvelous he is. And the creatures and the elders are actively pointing to him. They're actively pointing to him through their actions and their words. They're proclaiming who he is they're worshiping him. In verse 10 it says the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones, they cast their crowns before the throne. Their existence is centered on Christ. We too should worship him in all we do. You know that that worship looks different. We're not called to sit in one room all our lives, singing to God. You know, we're not supposed to just stay in this room for the rest of our lives, in any, like in this worship service that'll end until either we die or Christ come back. Our lives on earth involve public and private worship, and worship is not limited to song or prayer or to reading scripture. Rather, everything we do, even eating and sleeping, is to be worshiped to God. All your life is to be centered on him. And the reason why you should do anything you do is to worship him. The reason why you should say anything you say is to worship him. The reason why you should think anything you think is to worship him. Don Carson, on his uh, lecture on this passage, he says, At the end of the day, what is most critical in improving our worship is this. Do we get to know God better, and respond to Him in cheerful obedience, in reverent adoration, not only in our corporate assembly and hearing of the Word, but in all of our lives? We've been searching our whole lives for something, and you know we don't even necessarily know exactly what it is. We But we've been searching for our meaning, for our reason, our satisfaction, our fulfillment. And what we've been searching for all along is God. It's not that he is the avenue to satisfaction or meaning, but that he himself is satisfaction and meaning. He's not the source of what we're looking for. He himself is what we're searching for. And we need to worship him. We need to in the sense that, he, that God commands it. Yes, you know, we must. We need to. And also, since we need God, we need to worship Him. This is a need we have deep down inside us. We are designed to have Christ at the center of our being. We are designed to worship Him with everything we are. In all our searching and trying, we've been looking for Him. We need to worship Him. But we can't. There's a separation, the sea, our own sinfulness. So the question is, how can we access the throne? And that's where our final section is, access to the throne. How we can access the throne is through the king himself. We need not approach him with hesitation, hoping to gain an audience. This king left his throne To be with you. He left this throne. He left his high place to enter our filth and squalor. He was willingly beaten and bloodied, and he died for you. Our mental image of Jesus on the cross is not complete unless we understand his splendor in might. It's not complete until we understand what he left behind when he came to earth how he stepped down from his throne to be nailed to a cross. He is a perfect, holy king, worthy of all praise and honor, and he willingly took on our guilt and shame. When looking at this passage, we must remember that Jesus chose to enter a position where he was beaten, spit on, mocked, tortured, and killed. Why? Why would such a God as this Do that for us. Why would he do that for me? Why would he do that for you? So that your holiness could be covered over. So that your imperfection could be washed clean and his perfection would stand in its place. But why? Why would he do that? So that you can know him on a deep, intimate level. So that you can experience who he is. So that you can be in his presence for all eternity. Near the end of Revelation... In chapter 21, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Have passed away. The sea is no more. It's no longer a separator between us and God. We can have access to Him and ultimately He will completely remove it. The dwelling place of God is with man. You know, what an incredible statement, especially in light of this vision of God's otherness, His holiness. He will dwell with us and we will dwell with Him. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. You know, this is an intimate gesture. Wiping away the tears from someone's eyes is a very intimate gesture. It evokes an image of closeness, of intimacy, safety, security, love, and deep knowledge of each other. And all of this is coming from the God described in chapter 4. We can access the throne of Jesus Christ because of what he has done and because of what he has declared about us.